ever feel completely in control? No, because nobody looks at me and pays attention to my universal hand signals of, okay, that's enough, move on now. Yeah, but is that not because we're so in the zone? that we can't see beyond the current thought that is formulating being, in our heads. Being in the zone is such a lazy excuse for not doing what you're supposed to do. Agreed. Yeah. I'm in the zone. Why, why didn't you put, put the bins out earlier? Oh, I was in the zone. Why, why did you forget my birthday? Oh, I was in the zone. I mean, just people think that they can get away with all manner of bad behaviour by just saying I was in the I was in the zone. Surely if you were in, a zo in the zone you'd be more likely to remember stuff. I've, I've never made in that excuse zone. for forgetting your birthday. Inability to I'm, multitask. That's I have what no idea when is. I have no idea when Hugh's birthday is. No, it's true. Well, he well, tries to avoid no it. have no idea when year. Steve's birthday was. and that's If it doesn't come up on Facebook I'm not interested. <laughs> I have trouble remember, remembering my own to be perfectly honest. I mean obviously mine doesn't June sometime. Mine doesn't count twice every, once every two years. I have a, a, a biennial biennial? Yeah, biennial birthday. Why? Because when I'm it's June the 17th, my birthday, which is which always... Is eight days after mine. That's how you remember. Okay, fine. Eight days after the important one. Um, so whenever I'm... One, one, once every two years, obviously, I'm at a tournament for my birthday. And Kate always says that there's no point buying me presents if I'm not there. <laughs> that's an excellent, so excellent excuse. So I thought that maybe... Je Gemma's birthday this year, she's at a wedding. Does that mean I don't have to... No, you don't have to bother. Right, that's the okay. rule. My niece, Sylvie, was born on the 29th of February. Oh, on the leap on the leap day, two years ago, and she was two this year. So we've had the real struggle with the children trying mm. to explain to them that it's it's not actually her birthday. She only gets her actual birthday once every four years. Does she go for the twenty eighth or the first of March? Well, my understanding is that people born on the leap day effectively spread their birthday over forty eight hours and celebrate it on both days. That's, that's a that's, very good idea. That's the tradition, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, it's because they only get to have and when, and when they. During a leap year, they go absolutely crazy. Yeah. I mean, I don't think Sylvie's going to go wild for her fourth, eighth, or twelfth. Her, yeah, her sixteenth could be quite the do. Be nuts, yeah. Well, it'd be a fourth, so really, she and should four, be. Yeah, yeah. She, she should be getting all the presents that a four-year-old would get when you're sixteen. I think it's the twentieth and twenty-fourth. When you're really. twenty, you're five. No drinking. <laughs> this is Set Piece Money, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. We are at Rory's house today, and Rory has provided not only two different items because of Steve's aversion to mushrooms, but also he has provided uh, food for a, a small ginger child. I have, yeah. Which could, could be... You know, well, rejected at any point, well, Steve, but it's gone down very well. Steve made him some toast. I wouldn't. Let's not. Let's not. This isn't. And so you have. Chef. You provided. Steve has done the cooking. Yeah. Um, so thank you very much indeed for my mushrooms on toast. I can tell everybody listening that Rory is the finest purveyor of mushrooms on toast in my entire life. I can only think that means you've not eaten that much. Mushroom. I think I've had it three times in my life. Twice with there you. you go. Who was the other time? Um, I'm the I lunch. think I had it at a pub. I'm overwhelmingly the lunch winner, though. Because I'm not wild about... I'll have mushrooms if they're stirred into something else, another, a bolognese another, or something. Another Steve stipulation. Just, just mushrooms on toast. That's not my thing. So I managed to get a bacon sandwich out you did, of the deal you, instead. You kind of so, uh, yeah. It's upsetting that. With me, Hugh Ferris. Ah, Stephen Wyeth, who, like the Queen, is having a second birthday at the weekend. And Rory Smith, who, like the Queen, is completely defined by his love for his dog. Uh, Chinch, by the way, continues to build his house. Um, Steve was uh, a little bit frustrated last week that I made it sound like he was physically building a house. I think he's probably beyond the plumbing now and he's got to the tiling stage. Yeah. yeah he's basically lifting stuff around and Nicky is telling him where to, <laughs> where, put, where to put it. Interesting fact. If I could choose one skill that I don't have in any way to add to my repertoire of one or two skills, I'd love to, I'd love to be able to plaster. 
Would you really? Yeah, you'd save a fortune. Yeah. Well, when uh, you have recently had your kitchen done, um, True. as we can see, it was a major success. It's um, got an oven. Last year, I also got the kitchen done, and both times, I think we were we were asking each other for plasterers yeah. because good plasterers. Hard to find. Absolutely. There should be a song There's about a that. There's a song about that. Uh, Chinch uh, is not here, as you will know then, but again, he has sent a missive in the form of a soccer story that is to come a little bit later on. Uh, thank you for everything that you've been sending us in the last few weeks at setpiecemenu and setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Well, nearly all of them. We'll come to that in just a moment with Steve. Um, you have been getting in touch in droves, as Harry Botteler did, to resurrect our idea of the religion world cup now you may all remember that uh, a while ago we thought it could be an interesting prospect and surmised that of the world's current players we'd have a semi-final lineup of catholic muslim orthodox and protestant and once again we're going to tread on thin ice here but try and keep it light not like the ice that would be very very dangerous and harry says Interested about your idea. Uh, if you're going to differentiate, though, between Catholic, Protestant, and Orthodox, then you definitely need to differentiate between Sunni and Shiite. But you maybe also need to have Sufis as a separate category of Islam. And I don't know if Greek Orthodox and Russian Orthodox would be happy at being grouped together. You're opening a whole can of worms with that one. Excellent advice from Harry. We will very much consider that when we come to playing out, as we will do, of course, officially at some point in the future, our Religion World Cup. Yeah, we also, definitely shouldn't do that. We definitely shouldn't do that. Also, would you allow a player to play for a different religion if they converted it would make the transfer window even more interesting start practicing roman catholicism and you'll win the world cup says one club to a player and save your soul in the process i love i love the idea of jim white sort of <laughs> cutting cutting desperately to, to fraser what's he called fraser dainton, fraser dainton outside stoke's training ground with the news that that charlie adams converted converted to hinduism in, <laughs> in the hope in the hope of finding first team football scotland <laughs> are never qualifying again are they well at, at a club owned by somebody who was in it. it could work it could work yeah, i'm absolutely worried that with all these caveats that harry is coming up with that we're just going to have way too many teams it's going to be even more cumbersome than the actual <laughs> world cup it's like he's going for the fifa presidency team. by trying to get <laughs> as many different teams into this religion world cup as he can and finally harry says your comment most of them don't believe anyway reminded me of the fantastic moment when Papi Cisse refused to wear a shirt, a Newcastle shirt, when he was a striker with Newcastle, with Wonga.com on it because he disagreed with it on religious grounds. And then he was found in a casino in the early hours of the morning. Really so, helped. excellent. Was it the same morning? <laughs> yes, it may want to be. Uh, and he was, well, he'd sold off his Wonga.com shirt and got a little bit of money and he'd gone and spent it in a casino. Um, and two things that bring two of our listeners joy as well. We, uh, we always like to hear the things that bring you joy in football. They come in um, on a regular basis, so we thought we'd bring a couple to your attention. John says he likes it when a player's boot comes off, but they have to carry on playing. Uh, that's always good, because often the, the, the sock is a little bit too much off the foot, and so it looks like you've got some sort of 16-inch foot. And something happened back in December that prompted Wes to write in. It was Manchester United against Burnley. Jesse Lingard hit a shot. It smashed the goalkeeper Nick Pope in the face. One. And then spun on the bar 720 degrees. Two. Double whammy of joy uh, at setpiece menu and setpiece menu at gmail.com. Uh, we've heard from two ends of the spectrum in terms of enjoyment or otherwise of setpiece menu over the last week or so. Firstly, from Michael Peter, who says, I blasted through my 17 episode setpiece menu backlog over the last few days on various Indonesian buses and trains. Michael, I'm sorry for the length of your journey if you managed to get through 17 episodes back to back. We also hired from Mark Romage in Perth, Australia, who said, I tried to listen to this pod for the first time. 
Ten minutes in, I hadn't heard football mentioned once. Spack and meatballs got a mention. Kidnapping old ladies, but no football. Sorry, not for me, lads. Well, you, you win some, I you lose some. Please, everybody, <laughs> I mean, ironically, that obviously was then followed by 50 minutes of talking only about corners, corners. which I would have thought would be enough football for anyone. I, but never mind. I say to people, get to minute 11 and then make your yeah. decision. Uh, let us talk soccer. I've been to Indonesia. Have you? Now? Yeah. Uh, his mention of Indonesian bus- buses reminded me. Uh, I, my sister was living there, and I went to visit her, and we did a bit of travelling around, and we flew... Same sister who had a Paris- who has yeah. a Parisian flat with no toilet. She was living in, in an Indonesian house with a toilet. Oh, right. So she's had both sides the, of the coin. She knows exactly what it's like. <laughs> she knows life. The, uh, she knows what she's missing. <laughs> um, but we went to the island, uh, the island of Komodo. Where everybody wears Japanese wear. That's kimono. Oh, I see. Komodo is... the dragon. As in the dragon. So Komodo is the island where the dragons, good, the dragons live. Good These guy, huge, good guy. Huge 10-foot yeah, lizards. And you, yeah. get, you get off the boat. And they're there, they're and waving the flag saying, follow us. And there's just this massive lizard in front of you. <laughs> and they're wandering about. And they're terrifying, but it's quite cruel because they are... Do they hold a plaque saying Smith and you've got to follow no. them? <laughs> they are essentially dinosaurs. Anyway, so this is a tiny island in the middle of what I'm going to say is the Indian Ocean, but I'm not sure. South China Sea? Anyway. Dep- you know, it depends Depends what coast, I think, actually. All your, you all, talk, I'll Google. All you people know where Indonesia is. So we're in this tiny island in <laughs> the middle people. of this, this exotic sea. And... The first thing I saw after I got off the boat was a Komodo dragon. The second thing I saw after I got off the boat was someone I was at school with. (laughs) (laughs) A lad called Nick, who was in the year below me at school, uh, and who was on Komodo at precisely the same moment as I was. We have a WhatsApp group amongst some old friends from way back when, um, kind of school-type time, um, which is called Tune, which is just essentially people um, who, if they hear a nice tune that they want to tell everybody about, they put a link on the WhatsApp group. And um, recently, an old friend of mine called Nathan, who is an excellent musician and Mm. knows what he's talking about, um, messaged the group to say, check this one out. And it's uh, a tune... Uh, called Nautilus by a lady called Anna Meredith, okay. who I went to university with. Oh, is that right? She played clarinet, and now she's almost world famous composer. She's had a, a last night at the proms commission, and I was just like, I went, to, I went to university with her. It's crazy, crazy how worlds align. Well, it is, uh, but you know, this is just filibustering because Steve is still typing if you're in, feeling, in Modo. If you're Island. feeling as though <laughs> as though Anna Meredith is doing better than you, Hugh, then you shouldn't, because you are without question the most consistently present member of this podcast. <laughs> That's true. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, Anna was a very good friend of mine and she was lovely and uh, I would imagine still is but she's become far too famous to have but a conversation. The nearest ocean is the Indian Ocean but I think technically it would be in the Flores Sea or the Java the Sea. The Java Sea or the Banda Sea, yeah. That is the kind of information that defines worth waiting for. Just, just so you know as we record the traffic around Jakarta is pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I've, got, I've think, got traffic switched on. Yeah. I think the traffic around Jakarta is always bad. My uncle, who you may well remember a few weeks ago provided us with the House of Lords chocolates. He has described bearing in mind he's a guy in his 70s and has been to many places having served in the army. He says that the, the, the road out and into Jakarta is by far the most terrifying thing he has ever encountered. Well, I mean, uh, to be fair, if you're driving towards Bikassi at, at this time of day, then a more full year. This is clearly not a man that's uh, tried to get up the stretch of the M6 between Birmingham and <laughs> no. Manchester whilst there's a contraflow in action. Could you please tell me what the name, <laughs> what the name of that guy who uh, got to minute 10 and didn't have any football was? He, his name was Mark. Mark? I apologise if you gave up on 10 again. Uh, 
uh, I did say a few minutes ago we we're going to talk soccer. We are absolutely now going to talk soccer. And the subject on Set Piece Mini this week is one that a lot of you have asked us to talk about, actually. So let's rip the plaster off and see what happens when we talk about VAR. The uh, relative merits of the system were debated long and hard before its tentative introduction to some competitions in some leagues around Europe in particular. Now it's here. Is it working? And have the teething problems proved that VAR is the final nail in the coffin of the match-going fan? Communication issues and confusion have dogged its first months in the public consciousness, and particularly of the supporters inside the stadium. So does VAR demonstrate that football is now a TV spectacle, or can the process be improved in time, for example, for the World Cup? Because as much as the Premier League want to wait another year before introducing it, FIFA, ironically, after all the ideological opposition to any video refereeing in the past, seem to be very much all in on VAR. So we'll start with an email that hints at the broader issue from Shannon Brown, who's a Spurs fan in Tampa, Florida. And he says, and I appreciate this is very much the general point, we'll talk about the fan experience in a second. While it's not perfect, says Shannon Brown, I admit that it can slash does slow the game down, for example. I also think they should show replays on the big screens in the stadium. I think overall it's been beneficial. There are countless matches that have been impacted by referee errors, some significantly more so than others. Those people complaining about VAR are the same people that metaphorically sharpen the pitchforks every time a referee makes a mistake. But now that the technology is available to help reduce the chances of a mistake being made, I cannot wrap my mind around why there's been such a resistance to it. So that is an example of a fan's experience from outside of the stadium, and he says that it seems to have been uh, beneficial. He would like to focus on the positives and tweak the negatives rather than rail against its very existence. So we'll come to the fan experience in just a moment because that, I think, is the genesis of the point from a lot of people that they want to want rid of it because they have had a bad experience of being in a stadium where they weren't uh, informed about what was going on. But generally speaking, has has it been successfully introduced enough to get decisions right, fixed? And that was the whole point of it in the first place. Right. I've been fortunate enough to witness VAR. Fortunate maybe is not the right hmm. word, but I have witnessed VAR's use in Italy and Germany long before we first saw it introduced in England for the FA Cup this season. And the experience of it everywhere has been relatively consistent I would suggest in terms of the European leagues who have dipped their toe into the use of it there have been frustrations everywhere I think we can accept that what I don't accept is the reaction of because of those frustrations right well this experiment clearly hasn't worked let's get rid of it we're talking we're a few months into an experiment which is one of the biggest changes that we've seen in football over the course of you know a hundred years or so of its official history so let's give it a chance. In the main, there has not been a problem with the technology. More often than not, the correct decision has been reached. So the debate with VAR is not over whether or not the technology works, it's how that technology is being implemented and how the spirit of the idea that football needed to embrace technology, which started with goal line technology, the, the Hawkeye as to whether or not the ball had crossed the line, which I think everybody accepted, was the ball in or not, was a key decision that we needed to start getting right. What we've moved away from is that football doesn't need to be monitored in the minutiae. Tiny decisions that may have been got wrong do not need to be changed. So VAR should simply be there to correct the major mistakes, the, the refereeing oversights. And so far, 
everywhere that I have seen VAR being used, that has not happened. The Italians are particularly bad with it. The Germans at the start of the first season in the Bundesliga, when they were using it, were wildly inconsistent. And incredibly to me, English football didn't learn the lessons of those and is making the same mistakes early on with its use of VAR. Are you saying that English football has not learned from <laughs> other football and been very incredible, much incredible. navel-gazing and introvert in the way that it applies itself? But you're saying quite amusingly that in attempting to get rid of human error, there is human error of a different kind. They've just shifted the human error up a level. That's the problem. And I think Steve's right. So... Everyone now accepts the goal line technology thing. No one's no one's saying we should get rid of that, which maybe shows that there is there is not a philosophical objection to using technology to improve the accuracy of, of refereeing decisions. I come at this, the whole VAR thing from kind of the opposite approach. Was I didn't think we needed it. I think what we needed was a cultural shift to say let's stop complaining about referees. Let's not let's try and change the atmosphere. Does referee accuracy in terms of the decision making has always been really really good. That's natural to an extent. A lot of the decisions are quite easy. It's easy to say that hit you last, uh, you boot, or you've booted that out of play. You bid lumbering central defender. That's a corner. That's not hard to say. But referees generally do do a pretty good job. My worry with VAR would, was that what you'd find is kind of what's happened. That it's just become another source of controversy. They found something that they wanted to to end controversy, and that in itself has become a source of controversy. So it's now. You know, is the VAR overruling the referee and should this have even been used and was that a foul? But as Steve alludes to, the main problem is mission creep and that's because we've now opened a a door to say that we want everything on a football pitch to be perfect. But the problem is you can't have everything... So that's got kind of a double double meaning or double consequence. One is that referees are clearly doubting themselves yep. and referring more and more stuff to the VAR just to be sure even when that stuff isn't the, the, the idea is that it's for clear errors in certain situations they're referring to the VAR even when they're not there's not been a clear yeah. error in a certain situation well this is uh, although this is one of the the misconceptions with VAR the referee never or should mm. never be asking yeah. VAR for assistance yes yeah, so to do so is a misapplication yes. of the technology the VA the video assistant referee is in a booth to let the on-field referee know when a mistake is being made mm. so if a referee is ever asking for video assistance to help them get a decision right they are misusing the technology so again as i say there's nothing wrong with the technology it is the implementation yeah of the absolutely but the, the mission creep i think is really important that that if you were to restrict it to, to, to penalty, pen, what there's sort of four, aren't there? There's penalty shouts, handballs, uh, wrong... Red mi- card, uh, mistaken mis- identity. Mistaken identity and one red cards. And red cards. That's fine. But increasingly, and I think it's it, the way that it's been kind of dressed up is they're looking for fouls anywhere in the build-up to a goal. Yeah. Uh, there was an example, so we should, and, and again, this may well be superseded by, by the time you listen to this, it might be superseded by a different example, an example that proves this to not be the case, and this is the exception rather than the rule, but there was um, a game between Spurs and Rochdale, uh, replay of the FA Cup at Wembley, where there was a goal disallowed um, for Spurs because there was a foul on a Rochdale defender in the build-up. As the ball came across, the Rochdale defender was attempting to get to it and the referee or the VAR surmised that he would have got to the ball and been able to affect a block or a tackle had he not been dragged back. The foul in itself was minor, but he felt um, the VAR, in conjunction with the referee, felt there was enough to overturn a goal that had been scored. Mm. 
whether you think, well, I think most people would have thought that had the referee been able to see that the first time, he would have given a foul. So therefore, he feels like the right decision I would was actually, reached. I would actually disagree with that. I remember that incident and I thought it was very, very 50-50. Well, if it was very, very 50-50, then it proves the point that I'm going to go on to make, which is that that, that is not something that you should be referring. If you do refer it, then you need to be able to get to the right decision. So it's a, a lesser of two evils, because what do you want? Would you rather have the decision not referred and it to be wrong, or the decision to be marginal, referred and got right? Well, let's, let's use... I, I, again, this is why I think that the, the, the kind of structure of this debate, the framing of the debate, is wrong. So the Man, the, the Man United one, was it West Brom, where the, the VAR... The matter, where the matter, matter was, was offside. marginally... Like so, a toenail offside, yeah. potentially. And then the, it was funny because the lines the were wiggly yeah. or whatever. But although they weren't the official oh, VAR yes. yeah, yeah, lines, yeah, yeah, they'd yeah. been yes. imposed Somebody by had drawn them on a child on MS Paint. whiskey. <laughs> the, so Matter was probably offside. Probably. By the very, very fine definition so, of the rule. Leaving aside the fact we've all become these sort of weird offside fundamentalists, and the offside rule was brought in to prevent people goal-hanging. If you're right toe is offside you're not offside it, I never understood why they, why they did away with the daylight rule that strikes me yeah. as being perfectly sensible if any part of your body is onside you are onside it, that makes no less sense than if any part of your body is offside you're offside and I, I think I've mentioned I've mentioned before on the podcast that when I was a teenager I used to earn extra money at the weekends by refereeing games I did my refereeing training when I was 15, 16 years of age and I, and I refereed uh, youth football matches to earn a bit of extra money at the weekend and when, when I did my referee training then we should have been sort of mid 1990s the way we were told to implement the law was to imagine that the player passing the ball was a car and the area in which he was passing the ball into was the floodlights of that car at night time and if the player that if, if, if basically the player receiving the ball was within the floodlights then that was offside okay but also oh, sorry let me rephrase that if the player, the attacking player in an offside position was within the beams of the floodlights, they were offside. If they would have been outside of the beams of the floodlights, but they were in an offside position, you, you allowed play yeah. to continue. So, leaving, leaving, all that, leaving that debate about... <laughs> yeah, but that makes... That, 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 that just gives you, you that, know, like... That helped. In, in terms of... <laughs> was that completely... No, 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 it was I was just thinking, the whole time you were saying that, I was thinking, uh, to earn a little bit of extra money, wait, I used to deliver phone books. How do you get such a glamorous job? <laughs> the I had a paper round as well. <laughs> the, oh, wow, you were must... Leaving aside, I was super fit at the time. <laughs> leaving aside quite how offside most cars are. <laughs> <laughs> are the, you the, saying that offside comes within the breaking distance he means active and that, that's then yeah, become active active and active, yeah, yeah, yeah. which again has confused everything because exactly. and, and it, it's created the, the IFAB FIFA the UEFA and the individual FAs are all terrible for complicating things and cr- kind of creating problems for themselves in an attempt to, to seek greater clarity what was a problem in the previous uh, like, uh, way of illustrating the like VAR they are all products of an atmosphere in which we demand perfection from referees and that's fine. If that's what you want, then that's absolutely fine. I, I, that's a kind of philosophical choice that you've made. I d- it doesn't bother me particularly. Referring absolutism. Yeah, <laughs> kind of fun- fundamentalism about every decision has to be correct and we will not accept any flaw. The problem is that most decisions aren't like that. Most decisions are kind of a penalty, but not. But equally in certain lights, maybe not, but maybe he initiated contact. Who knows? A VAR can't tell that any more than a referee on the pitch can. As you can tell whenever you watch Match of the Day or whatever, and two different pundits say two different things, and they watch the replay nine times. Yeah. So the problem is we've now got to a stage where, because of mission creep, VAR is being used for loads of stuff. So the matter offside... 
was that a, it was, that wasn't a clear and obvious error because he was only marginally offside. But obviously the VR is going to the referee. Well, look, he's offside. So, so yeah. I don't, uh, was that for a goal? Yeah, I think it must have been. Was otherwise, it would have become such a yes, yes, such, was, such was, a topic yeah. of so, conversation. Yeah, but it's not a clear and obvious error. He was just very, very, very slightly offside. So again, you've got this kind of tension between: do you want to correct the, the big mistakes, or do you want everything to be perfect? So you've got that, yeah, that mission creep then means that it's now being applied all the time, it's being applied inconsistently, and most importantly of all, it's being impl- applied for a lot of situations where there is no correct answer. So all you're getting is the controversy that the VAR has interfered and delayed the game and overruled the referee and seeded doubt in the, in the mind of the referee to get to an answer that is no less correct but or no more correct than it would have been anyway. In that matter situation, I think, Steve, this is what you were originally referring to. If you are going to refer that to the VAR, fine. Mm-hmm. But once you have done so, there needs to be an element which is to consider it not clear-cut enough to refer back to the referee and say, we're going to stick with your original decision, not because it's necessarily to the letter of the law 100% right, but because we we should err on the side of yeah. the original decision unless it is obviously but wrong. Can exactly. you imagine what would happen if they'd done that and I, I agree with you logically that's absolutely right that that's the that's kind of how it's meant to be applied that it kind of umpires call yeah. becomes the if it's if it's marginal you go with, what, with, whatever, decision, the, yeah. with whatever the referee thinks the referee still like the Pope is infallible it's just that now like the Pope he has video technology <laughs> the but can you imagine what would happen if if the, if the VAR said look we're, we're gonna stick with your, your your original decision give the goal and then it had emerged from the pictures that everyone had seen on TV that he was offside. But there'd have been absolute mayhem, and that's the problem. The, the problem is not with the but the, the but way but the decisions that, are but made. But that's in a lack of education. If if people say, "Well, it's going to stick with the on-field umpire," sorry to keep on using cricketing terms, but hopefully people understand what we're talking about. If we have decided that that is the rule that will be followed, anybody who protests is protesting against a fact, a rule, which is put into the statutes and cannot be... But people would protest. Because it's well, because they can protest, but they're protesting against something there's no, no you, point protesting against. So that's just opinion. That's not just saying the rules here are grey. Right. It's not too late to put the handbrake on. VAR is still in its infancy. That's true. So let's forget what we have learnt in terms of the negative aspects of it over the course of the last few months and focus on the positives. I'm not focusing on the negative. I'm just saying that the problem that no amount of video, no amount of technology can solve the problem that football has created for itself, which is this ideological addiction to, to A, to perfection and B, to complaining. Right. But you can't have both. You can't have perfection and no complaining. Let's Because people will complain regardless. Exactly. Because a lot of the so decisions what, aren't... What, so, so either go for neither or pick one. <laughs> right. OK. So, so the spirit... I think, Pat, in this, in, in this country, sat in England as we are now, the, the clamour for technology gathered a pace in the World Cup game where the Frank Lampard shot came down off the crossbar, bounced over Although the... Of, over of the course, in 1966, there were a lot of English people exactly. saying, we need video technology to be absolutely certain that this goal did go in if it didn't then we're then simply we'd not prepared le- we're not, we'd rather let you have not the world prepared to win the world cup and 1986 apparently we've, there was an incident where a, a player a high profile player handled the ball and scored scored i can't remember the the, the no. people involved but there wasn't you know there wasn't people, an people, 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 people. but those are the incidents that people would point towards to say this is why we need video technology nobody there was no demand for video technology to work out whether one matter's big toenail was offside or not. Except... The, the Except when you go the other way and the, the fans no, no, no. of the team that it's gone against <laughs> find out that it's gone against them. This is why I'm saying, look, put the handbrake on. 
say, look, right, okay, we've tried the technology and we are satisfied that the technology works. Sorry for any mistakes that have been made and sorry if those people using the technology and broadcasters and the media have got a little bit carried away with how much we need to, mm. to analyse decisions over and over again. We, we think that the way forward is to ensure that we've got technology to correct the clear and obvious errors. That was the spirit in which this was introduced in the first case. So, do you know what? That is what the video assistant referee, the guy in the booth in whichever industrial state on the edge of whatever major city in, in Europe they are sat re-watching games. If they spot something quickly and obviously the referee has made a mistake over, then they are there to, to uh, let the referee know quickly that that has happened and give him the opportunity to correct that So error. the referee never instigates it? Is no, that that's not what, no as, as I've already said, that is not the spirit of the use of the technology. The referee should never call, be asking for the video assistant referee's help. The video referee, the video assistant referee is there to let the on-field referee know that he has made a mistake. So therefore, I, we should be as spectators, and this is the other big frustration, for everybody that was saying, look, we need technology to correct the major errors. Those who were fiercely against the implementation of technology took that position because of the nature of the way in which football is played. It isn't a stop-start sport, and the use of technology would interrupt the flow of the game. We can satisfy both sides of that argument. Let's use the example of Abdullah Dukure's handball goal for Watford against Southampton in the Premier League earlier this season. Within about, well, something looked wrong about it at the time. In real time, at first glance, there was like, there's something unusual about the way that the ball has ended up in the back of the net. But the referee and the linesman clearly couldn't be sure of what part of his body it had come off, so they award the goal. Within 30 seconds, Everybody in the stadium knew that he had used his arm to, to, they to divert the, ball on the big screen. To, well, no, because word spread so quickly right. around around the ground that that had happened. So, do you know what? That could have been corrected so quickly mm. by, but, but the players would not have even been back ready to kick off, and a major error by the officials could have been corrected, and nobody would have disputed the use of technology in that instance. Know that there'd be no delay of the game, and probably most people in the stadium wouldn't have even needed an announcement from the official as to why the goal had been ruled out. Referee pointing to his arm, free kick being taken from the place that the incident occurred, it would have been painstakingly mm. obvious what had happened. So, no, you're saying in the in, in the instance that Rory's using about the fact that it it would be perfect, but it wouldn't be complained against. No, because it would only it be that used one of those rare occasions where it would you could get both. Player player scores from a clearly offside position. Very quickly, the officials would know about that. Free kick would be taken from that position. There'd be no need for debate. The, the problems are when the video assistant referee is getting involved in those matter-type incidents or a 50-50 challenge that happened 40 seconds before a goal was scored in back play that they suddenly decide, well, that had a, a major impact on whether or not a goal was which, scored. Which I hope has never been and will never be referred because that, that is an example of something We've that... We've certainly seen instances of it, though, being reviewed mm. in Italy. I've, I've, oh, I in have Italy. sat right. and watched Serie A games where That's crazy. they have That's gone, crazy. gone back several phases in mm. play to look at things that's like but, you're looking for a way to disallow yeah. it I mean that's strange and, 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 and I think the same can be said for I know penalty incidents is one that you've got a real 
potential issue with Rory because, you know, they are not linear decisions. They are mm-hmm. open to interpretation, which again is why we come back to, if you can't be, let's put a time frame on it. If the person yep. watching in the booth cannot make a decision within 30, 45 seconds as to whether a clear and obvious mistake has been made, the on-field decision stands. Because you're literally, in, a, in, the, in the issue of a, you know, a, a, you know, a penalty being awarded, you know, you're effectively saying that the video assistant referee has got the amount of time it takes for the players to finish complaining to the referee, <laughs> get away from surrounding him, get their positions outside of the penalty area, ball to be pointed on the spot. There is plenty of time there for a so, clear yeah. mistake and to be analysed. Be but, analysed. But just very quick, that's why I get really annoyed about the complaints about, oh, it's, football is such a flowing game, it's not stop. you don't have stops and starts. Rubbish. There are so many stops and starts in the game. There are people rolling around on the floor, and as much as you think that some of them might be legitimate injuries, mm. some of them aren't. Um, there are complaining. There is complaining. There is fetching a ball that t- some idiotic player has thrown away from the person who wants to take a, a throw. Well, these stops and starts happen for much more frustrating reasons than getting to the right it decision. It has been scientifically proven that 65% of football is waiting for someone to take a throw in. Right. Well, there we go then. No, yeah, but, I will but, never. I will never accept the argument of. Football does not stop and start. It, you've got to let the game flow. The, the, Rubbish. The numbers have been crunched. It, it's, it's like maximum of 60 minutes in every 90-minute yeah. yeah, yeah, game yeah. where the ball is in play. So, sorry, just to finish my train of thought, we can have our cake and eat it. If, if everybody understands that there will still be the occasional contentious narrow offside or 50-50 penalty decision that may go against their team, all that we are looking to eradicate is the clear and obvious errors that at the end of the season you might point back to and say, that was the difference between my team going down or staying up or my team qualifying for Europe or otherwise, or even my team being crowned champions or coming second. Steve, 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 Steve. Come on then. I feel Steve, like the train of thought Steve, has Steve, hit Steve, the buffers. Steve. Those buffers it was are called Rory and Smith. It was such a such a good train of thought and I agree with you completely until except for the bit about fans being able to accept that um, the minor offside decision that was just a little bit wrong isn't a major controversy that's where all of this falls down and I come back to the atmosphere because you're you're completely right and I'm and I was only being patronizing no, no, no. for comic purposes but <laughs> they still cut deep the, <laughs> but the problem is that if you're a West Brom fan, and oh, that's a bad example because there is the, the master example. So if you're a never if you're a true word spoken in jest, by if, the way, Steve. If you're if you're a Southampton fan, and you're playing Everton, and the Everton Everton score a goal in a three-one win, that is to so not the deciding goal, yeah, the yeah. third goal in the ninety-third minute, you've had four of your strikers sent off, so you're not going to score a goal. Plus, you're Southampton. When have Southampton had four strikers? <laughs> <You're not laughs> four scored a goal. Yeah. So <laughs> Southampton are not going to score a goal. It's abundantly clear. And Everton score a third, and Theo Walcott is half a yard offside. His front, you know, his his front foot is offside. The rest of him's on. There will still be a. a, a chorus of complaint about that because it's well the v- why didn't the VAR work why didn't the VAR cancel that out maybe the goal difference could do us every minor transgression in the right pair of eyes becomes a huge scandal and that's the issue that we have with VAR that VAR can't solve unless it reviews everything and in some way finds a way of taking the vast majority of decisions in football are shades of grey and that's the thing about penalties that with a, with a lot of penalties, you can find reasons why they are penalties and why they're not penalties, and you can prove them to to kind of prove your own point if you if you want to, uh, or you can say, well, actually, that's that's definitely not a penalty because of this, this, and this. The problem is that that, that noise 
has contributed to this atmosphere where we have convinced ourselves that referees... There's a number of people who get in touch on Twitter and tell me that the standard of refereeing is worse than it's ever been. And you think, <laughs> you didn't watch any football in the 1990s yes. when it was definitely worse. And I'm sure it was worse in the 70s. Yeah, in fact, you didn't watch any football last week because there were some yeah. been wretched decisions then. And people say, oh, you know, it's the incompetence and corruption of the referees. And you think, well... Then they're not incompetent. They're, it's a really hard job. They're doing their best. You, you've got a game that's far, far quicker than it ever used to be. Loads of play. The players constantly. I mean, to be honest, we should blame the players more than we blame the referees. Just the players are cheating yeah, all like, of the like time. Like we said in our cheating episode, as we yeah. talked about. And yeah, if, they have to take some responsibility. And if they weren't cheating, then the referee's job would be a lot easier, and they might get more right. Yeah. So if there wasn't, it wasn't. If the thing of initiating contact didn't exist, referees didn't exist. That didn't invent that. So, do you, so hang on. Let well, me finish my. Well, I was just going to say, do you want do you want grey areas to be ignored or respected? No, so a friend of mine texted me after, I think it was after the Spurs-Rochdale thing, and said that the problem we've got now is that VAR is the natural conclusion of people assuming that the rules are more important than the, than the game. I don't think that football's not stop-start. I don't think you need to protect the flow of the game. I don't think football is unique where all of the sports can have video technology, but football just, it just doesn't work in football. But I do think there is a kind of cultural problem in football that people are not prepared to accept anything less than objective proof and often aren't prepared to accept objective proof well, that's, that's of their own team suffering. Exactly. And that, that sounds like a criticism of fans, but it's not. And a discussion that we've, we've had we've on had. this podcast It comes before. from the managers and it com- the players cheating yeah. and the managers, as soon as they're given the slightest opportunity, blaming the referee. And I think we've cr- we have created a problem for ourselves where now nobody trusts the referees and so every decision is poured over, which means that you do highlight that there are, you know, they, they get and, stuff and wrong. And they're made to look more inept with the, each yeah, decision exactly. that is considered by a third party. And that is now being transferred onto the VAR. So now the VARs aren't, yeah. aren't competent. And so w- what will happen is you'll get some fella watching watching the VAR on another screen, so always click the wrong button there. And then that guy will be considered inept. And you, at some point we have to say, the problem is not how good the ref... Maybe there is a limit to how good referees can be. Maybe if they're getting, I think the, the estimate is they get 96% of decisions right. They thought VAR could take them up to 98%, which seems quite re- yeah. reasonable. Maybe we have to accept that is as good as a referee can be. I don't quite understand why we haven't done the much simpler thing of putting a referee in each half, to be perfectly honest, in each half of the pitch. Have it, does that, that then takes out the, the issue of the, um, yeah. of the speed of the game. But the problem is not that, the, as Steve said, the, technolo- the technology works perfectly. We know that. The systems, I think, can work. They need to be refined. It is a trial period. The problem is cultural and that we will never, ever reach a stage. And I, I broadly supported the introduction of VAR, although I didn't think we needed it. thought we all needed to, grow, needed to grow up instead. The problem is we will never reach a stage where we accept that VAR has worked because so much of it is shades of grey and people will not accept shades of grey. That's fine, but isn't, isn't your desire to have a cultural shift and everybody to, to trust referees a little bit more as unrealistic as you said that Steve was being about asking everybody to just accept yeah. those grey areas. I was decisions. just more generous in allowing Rory to make his point without ridicule. Yeah. Yeah, that, 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 was, a nice that person was the difference. <laughs> yeah, no, you are. That's completely right. Yeah, it's not going to happen. But so, so, um, so which one do we think is, is more realistic out of the two? My point about grey areas, which, which we'll come on to now, and we need to talk about the fan experience inside uh, the stadium mm-hmm. because that was yeah. the well, reason that we started this conversation, yeah, yeah. is that if you've got a grey area decision... Do we ignore it or respect it? Do we say that it, we ignore the grey area decisions and re-referee everything via the VAR? Or do we respect that there's a grey area and do an umpire's call, a stay on the field, yeah. where we just say, 
it's a grey area, and that's the kind of that's the argument defeater. That's the thing that you say, which is just simply, well, everybody, it's a grey area. Deal with it. And if you just keep going with that, keep going with that, you decide that that's that, that those that those are the words and the language you're going to use. It's a grey area, or you know, something slightly slightly more uh, palatable for fans. Just call it that and say it's not it's not legitimate. You can't have it discussed by the VAR. Maybe I've never done a Twitter poll before. Maybe we can put a Twitter poll out and say, right, do we, if we accept that VAR is here to stay, it's going to be at the World Cup, FIFA have approved it, it is part of football's future. So now we just need to decide what is the best version of video assistant referees that we are willing to accept. I'd love how we're going to try and articulate this. Oh my God. <laughs> I'll come up with it. I'll put the bins out. I'll yeah. put the bins out. Go on, I'll do it. VAR is here to stay. But do you want black and white decisions being decided via, by it and no delay to the game? Or do you also want grey area decisions mm. and accept that there's going to be five or six minutes per half whilst the VAR reviews even the smallest things? And I think, I think most people, please, please, Twitter, prove me correctly, would say, <laughs> we'll just have the light black and white version, yeah. please. Because ultimately... The only, the only things that really make us angry for a prolonged period of time are the clear and obvious errors. That's, that's true. The, 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 there is a, a diminishing effect on the, on the grey area decisions that Steve was talking about. And he, he mentioned that the matter goal, had it, had it stood and it shouldn't have done, you, Rory, said that there would be fury about mm-hmm. it. Well, th- th- it would diminish quicker than the fury over Frank Lampard scoring yeah. a goal that, 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 that didn't happen. So... That th- those are the those are the potential kind of things that we'll put out onto Twitter poll, and that's fine. But Steve said five or six minutes each half that will be affected by VAR decision making, and this brings us on to our our starting point. It'll be our finishing point as well. The fan experience. In no way should there be five to six minutes. And I am I am not one of those like Rory said. I'm not one of those people who says that the game flows so much that you can't start and stop it. But in no way should decisions take five to six minutes unless in that one in a million chance there are seven offside goals or four penalties or five mistaken identities, six red cards. Never, ever should it take five to six minutes. And one of the reasons is is because clearly the communication between VAR and the on-field referee at the moment is a little slow. But also because for the fans in the stadium, there is no signage apart from to say a VAR decision is happening. You've got a referee with his finger pointing to his ear and which is not a just, clear signal for majority not, of the people in the stadium. And he's just he's just standing there, and we've got we've got a close up on television. We're watching it at home, but nobody in the stadium can see that. So surely there needs to be some sort of representation of the decision making process going on on the big screen, visually or audio wise, from some member of the officiating team to tell us what is happening. It's like being stuck on a train or a tube. If you're stuck and you don't know why you're stuck, you're really annoyed. The, if you're stuck and you're being told why, you allow it. The, the fact that they've thus far, and I think this is the case all over Europe when they tried it and in MLS, the fact that they have refused to show the incident that's been reviewed to the fans in the stadium is really telling because it shows what the authorities they think don't trust of the it. fans. They don't, well, but they also don't trust their process at the moment. Possibly that, but I think, it, I, to me, it, it smacks more of a kind of, we don't trust the fans. To If we show this, half the fans in the ground, potentially, theoretically. <laughs> Poor George. George has taken a swig of water. It's, it's actually made the situation worse, hasn't it, son? 
Let's get a VAR of George <laughs> suffering as we completely ignore him. Multi, talk about multi, multi, multi-angle replay of George <laughs> coughing up what little bit of water he did manage to consume before it all went crazy. Well, look, but this is another aspect in where if we're just dealing with right. Okay, sorry. First thing that ain't changing. They, not they, they're not going to show contentious issues on the big screen. They don't show. Them, they didn't show them before. Yeah. VAR was even the brainchild of, of anybody involved, you know, in, in leading the game forward. They're certainly not going to show it now whilst the referees are going to make the decision. So just accept that, people. You are but, not but going... they show goal line technology now because there was a problem because in the original... Because it's linear, Hugh. I know, but they, but they originally didn't and realised that they had to. And then the only problem that they've had with that is in, in Euro 2016 when a France goal was ruled out and they showed the wrong goal line yes, instant because there were two and they took so long to bring it to the screen that they actually showed one that had gone in when it had yeah. it. And so it, you know, it was a mistake. But they, they, they realised that they needed to inform fans as quickly as they possibly could as to what had happened. Surely the argument holds. You're going to have to eventually realise that that is more beneficial than being so scared of showing a controversial issue on the screen. But if it, that, That's why I keep saying if we just focus on dealing with black and white issues, mm. that isn't a problem. Because it isn't open to interpretation, the, the supporter in the I agree with the you supporter that. in the ground would would accept a decision being overruled if they were aware that the policy was to only change something when it was clear and obviously wrong. So the the replay thing wouldn't wouldn't come into the equation because you wouldn't need to see it mm. any more than you currently do. I think what they could do is in those circumstances when there is a video assistant referee decision pending that that message, by way of a graphic or LED scoreboards, could allow fans to know that the reason that the game hasn't restarted is that we are just double-checking something. But that actually, do you know what? The supporter experience would be improved by fewer things being looked at by the video assistant referee that, because they would become yeah. less aware of but it. That, yeah. But that's fine. But can't It I, would actually be a novelty. Can't we, can't we ask for both? Ask for black and white decisions only and them to be brought to the screen. The, but I just Hugh, it's if, not gonna, if you want black and white decisions only, then the argument extrapolates that you should then be able to bring them to screen, yeah, but, which solves that problem. But Hugh, how many times have you been in a football ground where if the home team score, that goal gets played in on the big screen? The away team score, you don't get you don't get a replay that, of that on the big screen. In my opinion, that is utterly ridiculous. It's absurd, but, but if the rule was that it had to be, this is this is not the decision of the club. This is the decision of the governing body or the league. So it has to be it has to be put up on screen. Are there big screens at Anfield yet? There's not at Old Trafford, is there? No, there's not at Old Trafford. No, but again, it would be the, you'd have to find a, a place to put them up. All, all I'm saying, all I'm saying is, is that just for the time being, can we accept that incidents aren't replayed on big screens, whether or not they're contentious or otherwise? So that's that's you're asking for something beyond mm. what is currently accepted practice. Let's get the implementation of the VAR technology sorted first and then have the argument as to whether or not we need it on the big screen. Because I think the, you, the, the, the reason you are saying that we need that is to satisfy the requirement of the fan in the stadium. And what I'm saying is that actually there's a shortcut in that the fan in the stadium's enjoyment of the game can be as good as it is now or maybe I should say before VAR became a thing because if you were only using it for black and white decisions and by the way you shouldn't need a screen by the side of the pitch for the referee to come over and have his two penneth on it because if he's got to come over to the side of the pitch to make a decision it's not a clear and obvious error so you should stick with his initial interpretation so therefore that would save you time as well 
just do the black and white. The use of VAR would be a novelty because we'd only ever see it for those clear, well, he was obviously offside or the ball was handled in or that was a stud-high challenge that the referee missed and clearly he needs that player needs to be sent off. So, so you wouldn't be delaying the game. Okay, so the fan in the stadium would be less aware that the, that the video assistant referee was getting involved anyway. You still need more information than currently is up there. You need a graphic saying, you need something yeah. saying, VAR decision pending, possible offside, possible handball, something. Because at the moment, when they had it for Spurs Rochdale, they had a sign saying VAR decision pending. It did not help anybody at all. But I agree, I agree with that. You need some, you know, VAR decision pending as a graphic on the board or is you know on an LED scrolling across an LED screen which would have to be the case at somewhere like Old Trafford currently and then you need another graphic saying why the decision has been reversed yes. I would I would agree with that but I just come back to my previous point that if you're only correcting clear and obvious errors for most people in the stadium the the, the way that the game was being restarted would let you know you'd only need a very fundamental understanding of the rules to, to know from the way the game was being restarted why the decision had been reversed. Well, that's fine. So, so basically, more, more signage, more information. If we can't get the can't get the whole incident on the big screen, then fine. We should do something because I will bring it back to the same metaphor: is that if you're stuck on public transport and you're not being told why, you will be angry regardless if you have been told why and even to the point that you need as much as possible if you're stuck on the train and somebody says we're just trying to find out what it is that is not enough information what you need is we have this happening we are investigating this specifically and that appeases you so if your problem is with the way that the fans react to the incident and whether you're Rory you said about grey areas it's not it's not it's not defined enough so people will complain whatever Mm -hmm. well here's a situation where there are fewer opportunities to complain because you're giving them the information that they crave. And okay, you may well disagree with the decision that has been made, but at least the process is helping you understand why it's being made. And why it was inevitable that we would end up basically having a discussion about the rights and wrongs of VAR. The actual motivation behind having this conversation was to remind ourselves that the fan in the stadium cannot be alienated no. to the extent that they continue to be so. Kickoff times moving, the cost of travel, the inconvenience of getting to and from games, the expense of getting to, to and from games. These things are starting to take their toll on the match-going fan. And if they suddenly are finding that their experience inside the stadium of watching the game is a lesser experience than the person watching at home who's getting the benefit of knowing why replays on, yeah. on the TV screen why why things are changing then they're going to start to drift away and as we see in Italy in particular empty stadiums do not do not make for a good spectacle and that we need, need to make sure we don't lose sight of that and a lot of people have drawn the uh, comparison between um the NFL, and I'm doing this very briefly at the end, the NFL talk, having the referee, the, ma- the main referee, talk to the fans. Well, even in that situation, the, the fans will boo a decision they don't like. And even though they're being told, they will still complain. So it's not necessarily panacea to, yeah. to have that situation. Uh, I just think any sort of information is better than what fans are getting at the moment. They should be getting as much as is possible to be given to them, considering the, the, the drawbacks of, of showing the incident in its full glory if you haven't got a big screen etc. Um, so, VAR, we're going to put a Twitter poll, are we, Steve? Up on the, I'll, work, I'll work out how to phrase out. it correctly. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll get you involved with that, that at set piece. I might need Rory to proofread the tweet. No. 
Just hit loads of abusive ad people. <laughs> yeah, don't have anything. Don't no, have anything. To nothing do to do with me. A retweet will be enough. Uh, so Chinch isn't here, but he is still kind of here in a funny way. Never mind, Jack Anori. What a soccer story! It's that time again, even in his absence, because Andy's going to tell us a tale from his playing days with all adult behaviour and libel-worthy details removed. I hope to God it's not about VAR. Well, this is a story where I feel I need to clear the air a little bit. I feel my name has been slightly solid in my departure from Everton Football Club. We have a colleague, uh, Steve and I, at the BBC called Paul Garrity, who is a recent subscriber to the podcast. Thanks very much indeed, Paul. What's he been doing until now? Um, not being told about the podcast, yeah. which is, you know, which is my um, oversight. I should basically say that to every person. But not everybody who listens, we've introduced individually. No, that's true. It's, it's, Most of them. it's quite an arduous task. <laughs> uh, hello, my name's Hugh. Would you please? Um, but Paul mentioned as soon as he, he found out that you were on the podcast, Andrew, he said, oh, yeah, yeah, Andy Hinchcliffe. Yeah, yeah, sold Everton down the river, he did. He did it in a, a Scouse accent. By playing for them for several years. <laughs> By playing for them and winning an FA Cup with them. And he, because you signed a contract very soon before leaving. Ah, now we're getting to Everton it. fans have an opinion of you. Some Everton fans, a few yeah. Everton, most Everton the fans, deluded ones, have an opinion of you, which is something approaching negative because they what? think that uh, you took them for granted somewhat. No, this is it's completely the reverse. Is true. Completely the reverse. Don't, don't pull that, that face. Don't pull that face. Tell us the real I was being story right. for I was all being... Everton fans. I was being managed, I say managed, in inverted commas, by Howard Kendall. Now, Howard and I didn't get on particularly well. I was offered a four-year contract by Everton, and I loved the club. So I was signed the contract. Man- was Howard was the manager at the time, but you kind of think, well, he might not be there forever. I signed the contract in good faith because I, I really wanted to stay and play. Were you not a bit confused why a manager who didn't like you very much was offering you a four-year no, contract? No, it's the club. The club okay. do, the, do the dealing, so really it's not necessarily to do. So you think of the club, if you're doing well, you're playing for England, the club are doing reasonably well, you can understand that they wanted to sign a contract. So they offered me a contract, they didn't have to do that. If they wanted to sell me, they could have let my contract run out or got rid of me before that. They didn't. Offered me a contract that we negotiated, I was happy with, signed it. And ha- then Howard, Howard wouldn't have offered you the contract, a four-year no. contract. He would have offered you a four-pack of lager. <laughs> Very possibly, <laughs> skull. Yes. For breakfast. For bre- yes. So that, that's what happened. So that deal was signed. And then Howard pulled me and said, um, we've, we've had an offer in. There's a, there's a possibility of you, of you moving on. Tottenham was the, the first club that I spoke to with uh, the great Christian Gross. And that didn't work out. And then Sheffield Wednesday, Ron Atkinson came in for me. And with his Kit Kats. From there, with his, kit, with his big plate of Kit Kats and the gold lame katsu. Uh, that was his wife, not Ron. <laughs> um, so that's what happened. I signed. It happens a lot because what tends, if you've got a four-year contract, the club always probably always had the intention of selling me. If you sign a four-year contract, the, the fee then to the club that, that want to buy you, you have to, break, you have to break that contract. But what Everton wanted me to do was to leave and leave that contract behind me, which clearly I was never going to do because I said, well, I want to stay and play. I signed a contract in good faith. They said, right, we've had Sheffield Wednesday come in for you. This was getting close to deadline day. If, you're sign- if you sign for them, you've got to leave everything behind. You have loyalty payments. But it's, it's clearly if you get sold, they have to pay you up the loyalty parts of your contract because they're basically breaking the contract and getting rid of you. So I said, well, I'm not going anywhere because I don't want to go in the first place, really. And actually, if you do, there's no way I'm going to leave a four-year contract. Why would you do that? It doesn't make any any sense. This is damning to Sheffield Wednesday, by the way. It really is. Well, kind of, yeah. But that's how it all all works out. Sheffield Wednesday used to like you. Yeah. 
Everton didn't. Yes. Now you've managed to flip them. Well, there we go. On an axis. There we go. But I live in Manchester, so <laughs> doesn't really matter too much, does it? So that's what that's what happens. So, but what did happen is the fee goes up as well because clubs tend to say, well, he's under contract, so you have to pay a little bit more for him because they normally know that they have to pay out a certain amount to you to get you to leave, which is in essence what they were doing. And the closer we got to deadline day, they felt I was so keen to leave. I said, well, no, I'm only going to leave. Clearly, if you don't want me here, if you sort out my contract, which I've signed, which we negotiated, then I'll think about signing for somebody else because you don't want me there. So it's all, it's all clubs do this just to put the transfer fee up. But to say to a player, well, just leave that all behind and go and sign another contract with somebody, I said, well, no, because ultimately, if I don't, if I don't move on, I'm going to stay and not the contract that I've signed because I would have done that. You know me, I'm a very honest man. Mm. The <laughs> what was that noise? Outrageous. Would you say that the air has been cleared and that you Massively. have li lifted a weight from your and indeed a whole club's shoulders? In terms of, I think we've footballing Febreze it. We've completely cleared the air. <laughs> Do you think that'll be enough to satisfy our friend Paul Garrity? Because I think he's been spreading yes. terrible rumours to, to everybody who yeah. supports Everton. Pa Paul, hello Paul, I know that you're listening. Paul did that very clever thing where he describes some Everton fans feel this way about Andy, Andy Hinchcliffe whilst clearly being one of the Everton fans who feels that way about Andy Hinchcliffe. That's like, that's like Donald Trump. Who knew that healthcare was so complicated? Well, a lot of people. I refuse to believe that there's loads of Everton, Everton fans who've been thinking for 20 years that Andy Hinchcliffe turned the club over. I think there'll be a lot more who've been delighted he's not there anymore, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> that will be the overriding emotion. Yeah. That will neutralise any feelings. We've been talking about the, left. the diminishing fury of grey area decisions. Yeah. Well, the, the, the diminishing fury of not really caring about him in the first place. That Quite, yeah, they must have been throwing money. Riding emotion. Long after Chinch left, they probably were still throwing their spare change in a bucket to cover the cost of his severance, <laughs> weren't they? At Set Piece Menu or Set Piece Menu at gmail.com is where you can get hold of us. Uh, head to at Set Piece Menu. Uh, we'll have a Twitter poll there. And uh, of course, all your correspondence is very, very welcome indeed. Please subscribe, share, rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thanks to Rory, Steve and George and particularly Paul Patrol and thanks to you all for listening to we'll be back with another set piece menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed hopefully with Chinch on it as well to be fair I can't Chinch, miss him Chinch returns um, it takes two weeks to build a house apparently in Portugal shoddy or put it this way it takes two weeks to correct the mistakes that he feels have been made in yeah. his absence yeah. um, to build a house if I was a, if I was a, a, a builder craftsman I wouldn't want Chinch turning up and telling me I've been doing stuff wrong. I'd get quite angry about that. No, not yeah, in his muscle fit T-shirt with his oh. Bruce Springsteen lyrics tattooed on his arm. No. It'd be really annoying. Yeah, it? who's this joker? Clearly, no, clearly, never done a hard day's labour in his entire exactly. life, and suddenly his, he's the expert on building soft, a house on the Algarve. His soft, epilated skin. On on the contrary, Chinch is a noted decker and tree feller and he has both those careers in his past is that right uh, in his uh, in his radio days because we didn't pay him enough money so he had to do other things as well he does have the chin of a lumberjack doesn't he, he? he does have a lumberjack that is did, very true um, and, and super like dry him, yeah. do do a lot of lumberjack check shirts um, he, he used to cut down trees okay and he used to do decking for people is so right? he is he is a noted labourer in the in the Cheshire area. I take it all back. I take I it all back. He has he has many many skills. I'd, I'd need to see the evidence of his hand. <laughs> if he could turn the tree into the decking, then I'd be impressed. I bet when he was uh, when he was doing the decking, I bet his corners were good. <laughs>